People want dependable coverage as their life changes. If you have a baby, if you get cancer, if you get older, <laughs> if you are let go from your employer-sponsored coverage during a global health pandemic, these are all the things that people believe their coverage is not there for them. It is not dependable when they need it. And so value-wise, if there's a healthcare system that can give them that, that was so important. Welcome to The Other 80, I'm Claudia Williams. While politics have a tendency to divide us, we actually agree in a lot when it comes to healthcare. Natalie Davis and her team at United States of Care have studied this. Here's what they learned. Americans want certainty they can afford healthcare and coverage that is dependable as their lives change. They want personalized healthcare and a system that is easy to understand and navigate. And now, as you will hear about on this episode, United States of Care is working to make these changes happen. So please welcome Natalie Davis to The Other 80. could just start by saying your name and what's important for us to know about you. Great. Natalie Davis. I'm the co-founder and CEO of United States of Care, a wonderful, impactful nonprofit. I think what's good to know about me is that I believe in people and I believe in change. I believe in humans and the ability to to do good and come together. And I believe in change both in the micro sense and self-improvement and self-betterment, as well as systems change and societal change. Um, And so for me, as I look back on my life, almost all of it has come back to those two beliefs. I was really intrigued to learn that you came to DC first with the goal of being a museum curator. Happily for us, you've shifted to other things. But what is there anything from that ambition or the work you did to get there that sticks with you today? In undergrad, you know, my focus really was on bringing together sociological theory and art. And mainly that was because I really was interested in the individual and society and how do those impact each other. And then for me, the natural extension was, and how does that show up through art? Frida Kahlo, when I I spent a lot of time in Mexico, a very small town, um, my best friend, her family was from there and we went to Mexico for her quinceanera. And that's where I got... um, really exposed to Frida, who talks so much about society and so much about the individual through her art. And when I came to D.C., I realized that it was a really hard market to break into, and I didn't have the chops yet. But like you said, I, it, it, it left me in a place where I could then explore really my passion of people and culture, which art is a reflection of culture, and how those can come together to drive change. And I think we're really starting to, at United States of Care, find ways that we can incorporate art into the work that we do to drive actual policy and systemic change. For instance, at you know some of our convenings that we've had, we've had artists come who are writers and talked about their lived experiences, having a disability or otherwise, and bringing that into the conversation. We're looking at some work that we're doing in maternal health coming up of creating public artistic conversations about what does it mean to be pregnant or 
talking to people who have been and that experience, which often can be really lonely and um, for black women, we know can also be very deadly, but how do we bring joy and community and connection together? And thank you for asking me that. Yeah. <laughs> have you seen Emily Peter's book, Artists Remaking Medicine? She was a partner no. of mine in California and is a amazing brand designer and brand person, but I'll, I'll send you a link for that or maybe include it in the oh, good. show yes, notes, but it's um, profiles of different artists, very different kind of kinds of art and different perspectives and the intersection with, with health. So I, you and I joined the Obama administration in 2010. Uh, I was at that time joining the office of the national coordinator of health IT and you joined what was then SOSIO, the, the, folks that were implementing the ACA. And part of your role as it evolved was leading a national listening tour with Andy Slavitt. And I'd love to have you spend a little time talking about that and maybe starting with what was the goal for that listening tour? and What questions were you asking people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I came to the Obama administration quite pregnant, uh, quite excited about joining the Affordable Care Act uh, implementation uh, again in 2010 and really got to be what was a startup within the federal government. And that scratched my entrepreneurial itch of starting and building and doing change. And there I realized though I thought it was going to be a policy wonk. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not. I'm surrounded by brilliant, brilliant people, brilliant policy wonks. And I want to do the thing that makes the change come to people's kitchen table and front door. And so there I really learned the importance of good implementation and how important that is to actually live out the promise of policy. When I then got to work with Andy Slavitt as his senior advisor, when he was the administrator, he is very focused on outside in sort of leadership and strategy development and priority development. And so learning from him, the importance of going out and understanding what is happening out in the wild, out in healthcare, and bringing that into the policymaking process. And there, my my passion of implementation started meeting this passion of responsive policy and how do you build a different sort of loop, this different way of bringing the lived experiences and into the policymaking process. And so um, to now answer your question, I got to set up the listening tour for myself and Andy, and then others would join us from the administration. And we would talk to the governor and the legislators in the state. We would talk to reporters, to the entrepreneurs, to the venture capitalists, to the hospitalists, to the doctors, really anybody who touched the healthcare system and, and asked what was working and what wasn't. We often had a message on how they could do better for the Medicare, Medicaid, and marketplace recipients but also really wanted that to be a time where we were bringing information back on our programs to influence um, and shape the, the policy and the implementation. That really is where healthcare became so much more understandable to me. And so it just became much more tangible and real and personal and really helpful. It has influenced so much of how we built United States of Care. Lots has been written about the rollout of healthcare.gov, and I think lots of us wish it had gone more smoothly at the beginning. If you could roll back in time, what might have you suggested Mm. be done differently? There was so much to learn from that turnaround and for me, it was watching that day-to-day management and culture setting and value setting that was so 
impactful to me and I think really made the turnaround successful. And it was that value of badgeless culture that everybody is here on behalf of the American people. And we are not from, you know, all these different silos or different contractors. There's so much to to really learn from from that. And like you said, there's so many books and case studies written about it. But I know it very much influenced both the building of it and the, the turnaround and then the successful you know, the success that it is that has really influenced so much of not just my work, but also my understanding of what it means to be a good leader and build a good team and build good, build good, good culture. So let's bring ourselves to the present. So you are now the CEO of the organization you helped found, United States of Care. And if you could just introduce the organization for our audience, who are you? As an organization, what do you do and what makes you unique and special? Yeah, so United States of Care uh, is an organization that sits right at the intersection of people, policy, and politics. Um, We have built an entire organization that is working on behalf of the people in this country to build a better healthcare system. But we know from all of our work that that means people have a healthcare system where they have the certainty they can afford their healthcare. They have coverage that's dependable as their life changes. It means they have personalized healthcare, which to them means getting what they need, when and how they need it. And a healthcare system that's easy to understand and navigate. And that is built off of thousands and thousands of conversation across all 50 states over many years. Um, and we take those insights and our Agenda for Reform, United Solutions for Care is a shared agenda. Um, we work at the state and federal level to change regulations and legislation and um, stay for implementation where possible and appropriate. We um, are building new solutions. We know as a country, we don't have all the answers, especially with equity and fairness baked in. So we have a lab where we build new policy or new solutions that can be deployed out. And then we really believe that changing the conversation in this country is also very important to make space for health policy. We often are told that nobody agrees on anything in healthcare, and we are set out to prove that's not the case. We have the data to prove it, but we also talk about about healthcare in language that resonates with people, both language they use, where it emotionally meets them. And so you'll see from our organization, very specific language that we utilize to really make sure people understand we're working on behalf of them and they can see themselves in it. We're a five-year-old organization. We believe, I think, in a really unique way that you have to bring everyone from the healthcare system together to the table. So we work with everyday people to providers, um, advocates, policymakers, the private sector. I'm missing lots, but we believe that to solve the problems, we all need to be at the table together. Um, and we have that agenda at the center saying, here's what people want us to work on. Let's let's do it. And we have a lot of wins under our belt, whether it's passing legislation in many states to make sure healthcare is more affordable, working with Congress um, on the same, in the same vein. We did a lot of work over COVID to ensure that people had access, whether that was virtually or through contact tracing, et cetera. And we built out a lot of really interesting stuff coming out of our lab and our, and our kind of conversation change work as well, which I think we'll get more into. One of the terms I saw in, I don't know if it was in a podcast or your background, something I loved and I would love to have you talk more about, which is listening loudly. Can you just say what that means for the organization? 
<laughs> I'm glad you like it because when I first brought it up five years ago, I love it. Like that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Get listen loudly. <laughs> um, we have a, a really amazing, robust. Um, community engagement and listening program where for over three years we have been doing just that. And at the very beginning, we were really listening for where are we finding themes, whether on issues, um, frustrations, emotions, where are we starting to really coalesce and start using that as the basis of, of our work And we then move into, so we have a great methodology, which moves from this really authentic listening, we call it, to as we hear themes, we move it into more um, qualitative, so uh, more structured focus groups, um, et cetera. So moving from the community into a little bit more structure to say, are we hearing these themes? And then move to quantitative to say, okay, we did hear that. Let's put some numbers behind it. Let's get the demographic data. But then as we take an issue, whether that's virtual care, whether that's an affordability issue in a state or something as big as value-based care or maternal health, it's that same sort of approach of listening authentically, moving that into more structured and quantitative work. Listening loudly is something that's really important to our organization, which is talking more to people that are left out of our healthcare system, pushed out of our healthcare system and aren't at the center of a lot of things. So who's left out of this healthcare system and who is failed by the system and people of color, people in rural America, people with low income. So that is baked into the work. But then if we look at something like maternal health, which is a work that we're doing right now, if you look at the data, it is women of color, um, especially black women who are left behind and facing a real failure of our system, which is causing morbidity, mortality. And so for our organization, we are listening loudly to black women because if the people who are not served by this healthcare system are listened to and then served, it will make the healthcare system function better for all of us. So listening loudly, um, something I'm really proud of and the the way that our organization and our team and experts have built that um, and really key to making sure that we're working on the most important issues that will have the biggest impact. I'm reflecting on moments I've been in policymaking roles where we haven't done that kind of listening. And thinking a little bit about why. And I think one of the reasons is just sort of feeling like you're going to make a misstep, like, oh, I don't know how to go do that. Another is that often as policymakers, we're handed a law that isn't open-ended, that tells us what we have to do. And then I think a third, which is related to the first, is just time and energy. So I'd love to hear your advice to people in those kinds of policy, maybe a Medicaid director How might they be able to integrate this important listening approach more into how they're doing their work? Yeah. And you know this, Claudia, and I know my hunch is a lot of your listeners know this too. The steps after your hand of the law from Congress or whomever it is, there are so many that come with, at that point, basically implementation, whether that's implementing it through building regulations, through building the IT system, through building the communication structure on how you're going to get that information out, the technical assistance to make sure people can implement it. I'll give you a great example. We did work in Colorado. We've successfully passed a lot of legislation along with advocates and others in the state of Colorado. One of the provisions that was 
passed was something called a culturally responsive network. So to be sold on through the public option, a health plan has to have a culturally responsive network. And that passed and then it had to be implemented. And so in working with the state, we said, okay, what does that mean? What does culturally responsive network mean? Because then you can build the standards around it. We could just come up with what that is. But we've been working in the state to bring together different communities, again, that are left out usually of strong provider networks or, or responsive provider networks to say, what would it mean for you to have a providers in a network that you feel like meet your cultural needs. And so we've had community conversations in libraries um, with the LGBTQ plus community. We've had a lot of conversations in rural Colorado um, and also people that um, are Spanish speaking first to say, what would it mean to be culturally responsive? So I think there's a lot of places along the way there where this can be done. There are times it takes time and you do need to do it in a way that is respectful and something I always say, it's not lipstick on a pig. It's not going out and just making sure you hear what you want to hear, but it's saying, we know where we need to start. And if we were to make no other decisions, what can we be asking right now? And then how do we, how can we build that back in? And I think that also having been in roles where I was writing regulations, you know, we feel like we're screaming from the rooftops, please comment. And of course, yeah. The people commenting are organizations with policy analysts, with lobbyists. Yeah. Sometimes you get individuals, but almost never. And so yeah. I also think it's good to recognize that there are plenty of places for input, but they're not easy to access. And so I think this more open-ended kind of listening, it shares a lot of qualities with user-centered design, right? I mean, this is essentially human-centered design. That's right. What United States of Care is pioneering is people-centered policy design. Um, and I hope one day to have that very documented in case studies and, and being able to teach others on how to do this. When we do comment on regulations, we include quotes from focus groups and from community conversations throughout the whole thing. Um, and we are always say, if you want to talk to any of these community members, let us know. We will pull together a group. We are a trusted organization or we have partners who are also trusted who want to bring you that voice. And so I think there's a lot of ways of using the partners that you already have and state advocates who are there to speak on behalf of people and are very entrenched in the issues. Um, they're, they're very excited for this. And I think it's a real strength of our organization that we can bring that to the policy makers throughout the entire process. The organization was explicitly born out of a desire to create a bipartisan, a multi-people <laughs> approach to policy. As you've been listening to people, where are the strongest points where people agree across party lines about what needs to happen in healthcare? So across demographics, race, ethnicity, political party, gender, zip code, income, here are the shared values that people have. People want the certainty they can afford their health care. Number two is they want dependable coverage as life changes. Number three is they want personalized health care when and how they need it. And number four, people want a health care system that's easy to understand and navigate. So value-wise, people across all demographics agree on those. And before I go into what the solutions are, I'll say that those words were chosen so purposefully. So in this first one, people have the certainty they can afford their health care. We could have just said people can afford their health care. But when you talk to people, it is the lack of certainty that is so upsetting, drives what care they get 
what where they don't go in and seek care, what keeps them up at night. It is this certainty that it emotionally resonated with people. When we did focus groups and we asked people to do heat maps, like what words resonate, certainty was one. It's not just the affordability. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Well, if you think about just something as simple as having a baby and having no clue what bill you're going to get. All of these. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. For the people want dependable coverage as their life changes, we could have just said people have coverage to meet their needs, but it is the lack of dependability that people feel. So um, if you have a baby, if you get cancer, if you get older, (laughs) if you are let go from your employer-sponsored coverage during a global health pandemic, these are all the things that people believe their coverage is not there for them. It is not dependable when they need it. And so value-wise, if there's a healthcare system that could give them that, that was so important. We took you know, a lot of really um, thoughtful time to figure out those values and make sure they they worked with people. And then we went back to the general public and said, okay, we hear you on these shared values. Here are 70 different solution areas that- (laughs) It's a long conversation. (laughs) It's a long conversation, exactly. Uh, But working with our expert network, because we have so many people that give their ideas and thoughts and time to the organization, we went and said, okay, here are the four things that people want out of it. Where can we actually drive targeted changes? And so um, we brought, you know, again, 70 different ones that we knew if we worked on it would increase more fair, equitable healthcare system. And 12 rose to the top. They rose to the top for across all demographics. And those are solutions that look like increasing the amount of people that can get coverage outside of their employer and more people on Medicare, Medicaid and marketplace coverage everywhere from having access to more care virtually to make sure I, I can have it where and when I need it, better mental health, better maternal and child health, support for caregivers who care for loved ones at home. So these are the targeted areas 12 of them that people said are the most important to them, their family's pocketbook and their family's health. Um, And you'll see that we talk about targeted changes because when you talk to people across the country, we started out and said, hey, do you want us to burn it all down and we can rebuild it? And everybody said, no, we don't love this healthcare system, but I don't trust that anybody who's going to build it back will put me at the center. What are some of those findings that really stick out? that you think about a lot in your work? Yeah, I'll give you a couple. So one that keeps me up at night is at the, I would talk to people on the phone um, before Dr. Venice Haynes, who runs our community engagement work. I would talk to people on the phone or at their kitchen table on the streets of Philadelphia. And people would say, Natalie, I'm happy to answer these questions for you. But you should just know that like my story is mine alone. I'm going at this alone. And I personally fail at healthcare. I know the system's not working, but like, I'm not good at it because I'm either too poor or I'm too rich. I'm too sick or I'm too healthy. Um, I'm too stupid to understand it or I'm too smart. And a real feeling that people singularly are failing to make it through a failing healthcare system. But what that means to me is that there's no seeing themselves in the collective problems and the collective solutions. And as we think about really wanting to change the healthcare system, we've lost people so much that they don't think we're going to do it for them, but they also feel like they singularly aren't making it through this. I'm thinking about other human experiences like trauma where yeah. often one blames it on oneself because that's the yeah. the kind of easiest psychological path out, but that we're creating that is really sad. 
for people. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as I think about for me, my first child, my son uh, was premature. He was 32 weeks and I felt for a long time, like a personal failure, like like my body shouldn't, couldn't do what it was meant to do, which was keep a baby in for 40 weeks. Um, And instead he had to have machines, you know, help him in that last period. And you don't realize until you talk to other people that a lot of people go through this. Uh, It isn't a a personal failure. Um, And, you know, a real shame keeps us all kind of hidden and keeping that to ourselves instead of realizing this happened. I'm a part of a bigger community where this also happened. And there's a lot of stuff that the hospital could have done differently. Um, and, but, but it is, uh, you know, our healthcare system isn't doing well for pregnant women and hearing from each other. And that's why your earlier question about art is so important, whether that is art through, you know, visually or short story sharing. It's so important to drive, you know, bigger systemic change. And it's interesting that I'll come to it in a little bit, but I'm taking on a role as the chief social impact officer at the Berkeley School of Public Health. And I will definitely call you separately because I have so many ideas and questions for how to apply this in that setting. But one of the concepts or one of the ideas is how do we support students and faculty and others to feel a sense of agency to take on big things in the world? Not alone, of course, not view this environment as one to learn, but view this environment as one to act with the knowledge, right? And I think the sense of belonging and groupness is a big part of feeling agency. Mm -hmm. So those two concepts are very interrelated. It's hard to feel agency if you feel very alone and you don't understand how your story fits into a bigger narrative. Yeah, that's right. Another finding that I think will really fascinate um, your listeners is this concept of value-based care. And so we talked to people about the promise of something like value-based care. We didn't use those words first, but we'd say like, you know, what, here are some things that could happen in a new way of structuring healthcare. What resonates the most for you? Um, and had people force rank it. And so we'd know in this new, in a, in a way that a healthcare system is functioning in this way, what matters the most to people. And I can tell you more about those, but then we would say, okay, we got your agreement. People call this value-based care. Like, what do you think? <laughs> How do you like it? And it it's resoundingly horrible. People yeah. hate it. <laughs> they hate it. Um, and so here we are for the last decade, um, really promoting this idea of value. And people think it is a value-based bargain the bottom shelf of the grocery store. Some woman said, like, I don't buy value bacon. I don't want value in healthcare. Oh, interesting. It is It is a lessening of yeah. who's setting this value. Cheapskate healthcare. Cheapskate <laughs> healthcare. Exactly. And so it's like, oh my gosh, all this work that we've been doing. I talked with one entrepreneur business owner and he's been promoting value-based kidney care. And I'm like, they think you're giving them a valued kidney. <laughs> this is not going to go well. A used one, right? <laughs> a used one. Um, oh. And so it's, you know, it's the things that we did to promote and talk about value-based care. The word value doesn't resonate. They hate when you talk about provider payments because they think everybody, not providers necessarily, but like they think payments are 
you know, it's all about money and they know everything's about money and it really bothers them. They don't feel like they're at the center of it. And we've talked about savings to the taxpayer that does not resonate with people because they aren't getting what they need as the taxpayer, let alone the cost to the bigger picture. And so we said, okay, well, what would you like to call it? And titles like patient first care, quality, patient care, really highlighting the the terms of patient and quality resonate the most. That's what they would want out of it. They want it to be high quality. They want to be at the center. And the things that resonated the most were all about time, more time with the doctor, less time in the waiting room, less time sharing their medical um, records, less time trying to coordinate between different doctors. So time, um, better quality and less quantity. They People feel like they are churned through this healthcare system. There was one woman that was like, healthcare is like a high school cafeteria and you're like schlopped healthcare on and then you're like told <laughs> to move over and they like schlop some more on. And we said, you know, that's the best analogy for fee for service that we could, you know, we've ever heard of. And so why does this matter? It, it matters if we're thinking about building political will, um, where um, especially as new members come into Congress, um, that they can talk to their constituents and their voters that they are working on these issues. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about a, a couple specific topics before we move into the closing one topic in particular that you've been working a lot on is preserving the guaranteed preventive services that were included in the ACA. And I, this is an area that has potentially very, very broad impact on people, not just people in Medicaid or on the marketplaces, everybody. Could you just give our audience a profile of this issue? What's happening? Why is it happening? And what's at stake? And, and what are you trying to do about it? Yeah, so that's right. So um, 150 million Americans get insurance through their employer. And through that insurance, there's a guarantee, like you said, where we get preventive services that are free to us. Um, we know that that has increased the rate of people going and getting care because they're not worried about the cost of it and has saved lives through finding early or finding, you know, at some point the cancer screening, mental health support, a lot of issues related to unhealth preeclampsia and others within the pregnancy. And so these screenings have been free to us for a decade. And there is a court case that was uh, this last year out of Texas that has found it unconstitutional to require employers, uh, require insurers to make these free the Biden administration put it in appeal, but this will change so much our healthcare system and talk about, as I said, people want dependable coverage as their life changes. Taking away free preventive services is proving to people that their coverage is not dependable. It is not there how they need it. It is not there seeing their full body and giving them the prevention that we know is so important to keeping people as healthy as possible. And so United States of Care has done a ton of work on passing legislation in states to make sure that there is at least a floor of preventive services that are required through um, through employer-sponsored coverage. We are working with advocates to make sure across the states and within you know Washington to make sure people are aware of this because I don't believe a lot of people are aware of this Braidwood versus Becerra court case. And we filed an amicus brief really on behalf of the general public. Again, I think this is such a strength of our organization. We could partner with others that are very disease specific um, or population specific and, and go arm to arm with them and say, 
this is about the general public and this will impact all of us. Um, and so our, our amicus brief was filed um, to, to make that case. And it's something that I like to talk about every time I'm in the media or on podcasts or otherwise to make sure people do know about this and the courts need to remedy this, but we also need employers to understand the impact this is going to have on their employees, uh, members of Congress, to understand how this is going to impact people across this country and voters and, of course, state leaders. So um, I'm really glad you raised it. It's, it's uh, This would be devastating to 150 million people and the 37 million children that have their parents get coverage through their employer. And it would be a huge, huge change to our healthcare system that people have come to rely on. The logic of putting this provision in the ACA, I think, goes back to the original RAND study, which is often cited, finding that if there was copay associated with preventive services, people used them less. And that effect was particularly pronounced the lower income. Now, in Medicaid has its own protections, but it's important to know that this is also very regressive <laughs> because it, it means that um, people with the least means are going to probably not seek things like vaccinations that are critical to actually staying healthy and also working, right? These are these are really important um, services for all of us. So as I said previously, I will be on Wednesday packing a truck and uh, moving to California. And I'm really excited to be joining the amazing team at the Berkeley School of Public Health. And the concept of the role I'll be taking as Chief Social Impact Officer is to create more uh, health impact in the world as an academic organization. And of course, I have lots of ideas and the school and the community, I think it does as well. But I just love your advice for what are some ways in which you think academic settings like that can create more impact on health? Well, one, it won't surprise you that I would say have a listening tour. <laughs> um, uh, I would do that both in terms of the students and the teachers. I would do that with um, the people who you hope are the end receiver of the information that is put out of the patients that you're hoping to serve. Maybe the policy that you're hoping to, you know, impact, you know, where are your places, where are your levers for change and those people that represent those lovers? How do they think about your role, the role to date, where it could go? And and figuring out, as somebody on my team says, like where are you first and best uh, and focusing on those, but meeting the needs of those lovers that you hope to change. I think, you know, a lot of places, there's so much great work done. And I will say even that United States of Care, I mean, the, pro the, the programmatic work and the products are so good. And half the battle is getting that out into people that can make the change. And so I think really finding those strengthening and finding those channels for impact out wherever you think that impact is, is going to be so key because there's so many, what we all have is, is time. What are those levers where you can really make those difference? And then where can you find those strong partnerships? I think something at United States of Care that we do is constantly building ecosystems of people across the healthcare system around issues. That's something that's so core to United States of Care that I'm always surprised when that is missing as part of the strategy of how can we come together on a common issue, have a backbone organization with a, you know, with a, a vision on that change that can help 
then have all of us make more change together and have that add up to the impact. We don't all have to make it our own or as one organization, but how can we collectively find that effort and then add up those the wins on the scoreboard in a way that matters to those that you're trying to to change the language and places where they want to see that impact. So you have a practice that a lot of other people I adore do as well, which is to pick a word to that represents your intentions for the year. And I'm curious to know what your word was for 2023 and whether mm-hmm. you've picked a word for 2024. My word for 2023 was a failure of a word, and that is just fine. It did not, <laughs> it did not <laughs> stick, and it did not resonate with me throughout the whole year. Um, the word actually is ironic because I was, you know, talking to the team a lot about our focus for 2023, and it was like bigger and louder. Like I wanted the organization to be out there more, and, and we have um, bigger impact, um, telling the story more, getting louder with our findings and the role we can have. And then I picked personally the word quiet. What I wanted from that was more space to have more quiet space for me to think and strategize. And um, and I have succeeded on that in some ways, but it wasn't this grounding word because it was just a lot more fun to be loud and out there and getting the organization <laughs> out there. And uh, so I still carved out space for quiet. I haven't totally landed on my word for 2024, but it's something close to the word ready, like ready for whatever comes our way in this next year, ready to, con- you know, to leap, have the organization continue to leapfrog in the terms of impact that we make, ready to take on the challenges of what it means to run an organization, to be a mom, um, to um to coming up on, you know, what'll surely contentious election. You know, for me, it's kind of a power pose word of like, I'm ready. Like we can do this. Bring it on. Um, so yeah. that, we'll see if that lands. Bring it on. Um, and pride, proud of what I've, what we have built in this organization yeah. that we are ready for this next, um, this next phase after five years, we're ready for all the changes in the healthcare system. So that's the word I'm playing with right now. I want to close out actually with a different question than I typically asked, and it's about listening and belonging. And we touched on this earlier. I feel through your writing on LinkedIn, through what you shared today, you've thought really deeply at a meta level, listening and belonging, the broader policy goals. Mm -hmm. What I'd love to hear you talk about is how you've nurtured listening and belonging within your organization. Yeah, thank you for that. It's, it's organization has taken the same tactic of making sure that we are listening to our staff and understanding a lot of, um, a lot of what it means to be the humans that show up every day to do the important work that our organization does. So we have a lot of different ways we do it. One is, organization wide we have a tiny pulse survey that we put out that we we field to our staff every quarter um, with some basic questions that remain the same over time so we can track how people are doing um, and then there are times that there are issues specific questions that we put in sometimes like what are you looking forward to in the break do you feel like you um, are appreciated at the organization do you feel like your work is valued um, do you 
would you recommend United States of Care as a great place to work? Um, do you feel like you can show up every day and be your full self? Those have been really important questions for us. I will say through that, we also learned, though, that anonymous results are very helpful, but only so helpful because if there were times where we had a lot of people saying they didn't feel valued, that their work wasn't valued, we didn't know what to do with it. And so we've taken a lot of time to, to build in um, conversations throughout the year where we are um, understanding both from a manager to a managee relationship of what it means to be valued, but also really intentional time to have those kind of bigger conversations as an organization about that. Um, and then we're doing a lot of work on understanding diversity, equity, and inclusion, and that you cannot feel like you belong if the organization is not diverse in and in appreciating diversity in a true sense. Um, if people don't feel like there's equitable treatment of people, uh, that they are included in on things. And so belonging has over the last two years, I've learned so much about what it means to belong, um, where people can show up and be who they are. And that that is, as much as people want to share, that that is appreciated and seen. Um, but I think it's also part of respecting people um, and letting them know that that we know they need a life outside of work. And that is part of belonging to an organization where we ask a lot of people and we have a really big impact and that can be emotionally draining. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for coming on the show. It's um, so wonderful to talk to you and we haven't actually met in person. So this is standing in for that. And I hope we'll, uh, I can't wait till we we'll do. meet in person <laughs> soon. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Claudia. Natalie and I ended this conversation talking about agency and belonging, and I'm left thinking about how tied they are. From the outside, it might look like delivering whole person care just means affordable housing and better access to food alongside healthcare. But really, it's about increasing people's sense of belonging and agency in their communities and in our society. That's a big shift in how we think about health. We can start by centering our policies on what people actually tell us they need and value. This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Kloss. Check out the show notes for more information on Natalie Davis and United States of Care. There is more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams. Claudia Williams.